This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we are live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Be sure to hit the red sub button. We're just a handful of subscribers away from 24,000. Let's see if we can put it over the top tonight. Uh, Terry James is with me in the first hour to discuss today's chaos and the turmoil and growing rage. Uh, He'll do that from a biblical perspective. He'll discuss globalism in the Bible and some interesting parallels between What is happening today with the pandemic and the way it's being handled by governments and institutions and how the Old Testament figure, Joseph, how he handled the seven years of famine in Egypt 4,000 years ago. I was just reading this in a, a new book, Lawless End Times War Against the Spirit of Antichrist. Terry James is the general editor and the parallels between COVID and how, again, Joseph handled the the uh, the famine, the seven years of famine in Egypt 4,000 years ago. Uh, an old friend from Kentucky, Steve Asher, folklorist, writer, storyteller, he joins me in the second hour. Steve has been with me before on this program, on my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, many times. And, of course, he's joining me on Coast to Coast AM. He'll be here to discuss some of his previous works. Rather, he's he's been with me in the past to discuss his previous works, the three-volume uh, Haunted Kentucky series, Haunted Kentucky. Uh, but he's back with two new collections of high strangeness from his home state, Curious Counties from Kentucky, Curious Counties from Kentucky, Dang Strange and Mostly True Tales, Uh, And the second one, Short Stories for Darker Nights. And it's always a wild ride when Steve Asher drops by. That's hour two. So where is all this uncertainty, geopolitical and cultural, societal upheaval headed? Why is there such a divide? Why such anger and hatred and anxiety? 
Could it be that all of this tumult and fear and panic constitutes a major indicator of how near we are to the end of this age as prophesied in the Holy Bible? Let me lift a passage or two from lawless end times war against the spirit of Antichrist. I'm holding that up for those of you joining me on the live stream tonight. Terry James, the general editor. In the uh, the foreword by Wilfred Hahn, Vladimir Lenin, the one-time head of Soviet Russia, was reported to have said, there are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Breathtakingly, an acceleration of that magnitude appears to have unfolded in the early months of 2020. No sooner than the COVID-19 pandemic spread across the world, a new future seemed to have headed, have already been well pre-planned. One cannot be blamed for thinking that a cadre of policymakers around the globe had been waiting for the next crisis. Cries, a crisis, whatever their kind, act as cataclysts, or sorry, catalysts in human affairs. Panicked fears and societal uncertainties serve as an impetus for new and unorthodox policy decisions by political leaders and policymakers. Of course, many of these are well-meaning, but many others have deleterious consequences. However, one doesn't need to invoke far-fetched conspiracy theories to explain why crises come about or how they're triggered and how they prey upon common and predictable human behaviors. In this respect, crises are a normal feature of mankind's societies. They have been the constant companion of human existence. Crucially, however, there is one conspiracy of cosmological dimension that has been playing out over many generations of humans. It is one that requires no speculation being clearly mentioned in the Bible. A master of intrigue will arise. That's from Daniel. He will take his stand against the prince of princes. The power behind him is Satan himself. Also, Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 reveals that all the world's rulers will take a stand against God at that time. A hierarchy of evil and dark forces work in unison and coordination to that goal. Terry James, as I said, is the general editor of this new book called Lawless, End Times War Against the Spirit of Antichrist. And the uh, the book is a collection of essays or chapters by 16 different authors, including the foreword, which describes how globalists are leading the world, wittingly or unwittingly, towards the three-and-a-half-year period described in the Bible as the Tribulation, to be followed by three-and-a-half years known as Jacob's Troubles. Terry is author, general editor, co-author of numerous books on Bible prophecy, hundreds of thousands of which have been sold worldwide. He's a frequent lecturer on the study of end times phenomena and interviews often with national and international media on topics involving world issues and events as they might relate to Bible prophecy. He's appeared in major documentaries and media forums in all media formats in America, Europe, and Asia. His other book projects include Antichrist and the Final Solution, The Chronology of the Future Finally Unveiled, and Discerners, Analyzing Converging Prophetic Signs for the End of Days. Terry James, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and I appreciate your uh, inviting me on your program. Uh, my pleasure. So I, I want to talk about this, this parallel that um, is discussed in the foreword of the book 
by William Hahn, and it's it's absolutely striking. So just sort of set the stage for us uh, uh, regarding Joseph in, uh, well, in the book uh, of Genesis. That, that's from a fellow countryman of yours, Wilfred Hahn, up in uh, one of the provinces up there. He's a dear friend, been my friend for a long time, and he agreed to write the foreword. <clears throat> I was... Um, I'm still going over, in some cases, of what exactly, because I have had a traditional look at uh, Joseph, of course, as a Christian, and Wilford has too, but he applied it in an economic sense, and some of the things we're going, uh, uh, we're seeing, I think. Uh, Joseph, of course, uh, was um, taken into Pharaoh's uh, government organization after uh, years of proving himself to be a worthy fellow and been captive there in in Egypt. Uh, and uh, so Joseph came up with a, he told there was going to be uh, a dream that the Pharaoh had and uh, talking about seven uh, years of, seven years of, of bad economic conditions and, and follow, and so he wanted a, uh, he wanted Joseph to uh, interpret this dream. I, I can't go into all the details because I can't remember the exact details of a, something to do with cows, uh, seven lean years of, of uh, cattle and so forth uh, being taken away from uh, from Pharaoh's uh, economy. And uh, so Joseph um, Joseph interpreted the dream for me. You know, Joseph was God's man. He was interpreter of dreams. And so he interpreted it. And, uh, and, uh, the king, the pharaoh, was so impressed that he turned the economy of Egypt over to Joseph. Made him more or less the, um, I guess you would say, the um, prime minister of, of right. uh, second. And put him in second. Uh, and, so he uh, went from prison. He went from prison where he was interpreting dreams right. of fellow prisoners. I guess the pharaoh caught wind of this. This person has a gift. Right. The pharaoh has this strange dream. Seven years of. Uh, Famine, and he summons Joseph forward, and as you say, he turns the keys to the kingdom, the empire, yeah. over to to so, Joseph. He says, "Here, you 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 have to handle this famine. How are we going to do it?" Yeah, and it was so bad, you know, and it's uh, the the interpretation of the dream was so bad in that it was going to destroy the Pharaoh's uh, economic uh, income stream, I guess you say, and so he turned it over to Joseph, and um, as I understand it, Joseph uh, then went through several different uh, things that, um, with regard to, he saved up for seven years, he grain, he saved grain up for seven years, and so that there would be seven years of good uh, grain whenever this thing hit. And uh, to be honest with you, you probably know more about this than I did, because it's been a while since I've read this, uh, this particular part of the book. Uh, and But I do no. know that, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, what, what's what's striking, and, and um, I've always felt, or understood Joseph to be a sort of a a, a Christ-like figure. He was a um, you know we, we don't we don't really hear about his sins in the Bible. He seems you know obviously yeah. people that came from the from the line of David, including King David, were very far from perfect. Uh, but we don't hear a lot of bad things about Joseph, and so we are he's kind of a Jesus type, and yet yes, he is. Jesus type, and, and Daniel was the same way. You know, neither Daniel nor Joseph, you find anything bad uh, spoken of them, about them in the Bible. They were God's men through and through. So that's one reason he was so trusted, I guess, by the Pharaoh, uh, was right. the fact that he was such an honorable, upstanding man, and even 
you know, beyond his uh, knowledge of the Bible. But the way Wilford presented it, it, it's not confusing to me, but it's been so long, but honest with you, I didn't know he was going to approach it from this angle, or I would have really studied up what Wilford said. Maybe you know more about what he said than I do on this particular well, part of the book. All right. What struck me was that the way that uh, Joseph handled the famine was, yes, he stored up the grain during the seven years of bounty and made sure that they had a huge surplus to get them to ride them through the, the famine period, which was smart. He was a good steward of the resources. But then what he did was he opened up the grain houses during the famine. He didn't give the grain to the poor he so, or to the hungry. He sold it to them. He sold it. He made and he 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 put that money into the pharaoh's coffers, and then when the money started to when people's money started to run dry and we had this liquidity crisis and we're familiar with with that problem these days, he 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 demanded that the people not only of Egypt but uh, the whole you know Canaan and and elsewhere to to give them their cattle in payment, to give them their land and eventually. To, to, to basically put themselves into servitude to the Pharaoh for the rest of their lives in order that they might eat. Now, this hardly seems like a Christ type. He wasn't being very charitable, was he? No, he, he, he was not, but and the Bible says nothing bad about that at all. His, it does, but it also does not laud the system that he chose to do. But it does show how a parallel to uh, how, how things are going now and how human government has tended to do the same thing, particularly... In, in um, I guess you would say, communist-type uh, situations where they eventually eventually take everything from the people and put them in servitude, as you say. And so it's a, it's a real contradiction, I think, of, uh, uh, some people would say, of, of uh, biblical truth, giving Joseph all this praise and and being Christ-like and everything and, and getting... Uh, people involved in servitude that uh, will basically enslave them to the state, which is is, uh, is really what happened. But the difference is here is that uh, Joseph, of course, was godlike in his, uh, godly, I guess you should say, in his deportment and in his conduct. And you had God uh, behind Joseph doing these things or allowing these things. And so you had you had more or less a godly basis behind all that happened here. But in, in this world that we live in now, uh, this is not done with any uh, any godly men or godly people backing government. Uh, I mean, there may be some there, but the basic thing is a raw uh, raw power, raw uh, politics, um, raw ec- economics, in which uh, the few want to have their uh, their uh, governments, their uh, their coffers. Uh, filled by the people. And so the difference is, is God is behind was behind one system, or at least he was backing it up. Now, that's about as far as I can go with it, but not in today's world, which is basically the same thing in which all people are being brought into servitude. That's the way I just briefly see it. Right. Although Joseph did make Pharaoh, the, I mean, he was powerful to begin with, but he certainly solidified or cemented mm-hmm. his position in the known world, really, um, as, you know, the most powerful person, as this central unifying uh, figure, he also he also instituted some some forms of taxation, which are still with us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, the parallel is with what's happening today is we are we are 
hearing uh, these are rumblings and rumors. For example, up here in Canada, there is this rumor that uh, the federal government may try and dip into uh, Canadian savings accounts to try and stimulate the economy. How they'll do that, I don't know. There are even rumors that you know we may have to give up private property. We may have to we may have to surrender sovereignty and embrace international institutions as a as a way of basically ensuring our survival. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same here in the United States. I mean, you know, with the trillions and trillions of dollars of, of um, that's being spent on programs and with nothing to back on them, it's just a printing press uh, type thing. Most people, well, some of the, the top economists, and uh, they, they can't see anything but a collapse and, um, and uh, that this thing is not going to work. And eventually people are going to have to pay the price, uh, they're going to add any up in some way, and still it won't be near, nearly enough to cover the trillions of dollars of debt that can be extrapolated out to literally two or three hundred trillion dollars here in this country, uh, according to the people I've read. Um, if things keep going like they are, there's no way to ever replace pay this debt. So what it all means, I think, uh, ultimately, as far as in God's words, God's prophetic word is Revelation chapter uh, 13, verses uh, 16 through 18, about the marks and numbers system that Antichrist will eventually establish, uh, that there's going to have to be this reset we've been hearing about. And uh, this reset, uh, they think ultimately, uh, at least biblical scholars do, those who take eschatology seriously uh, believe that this reset will eventuate in the Antichrist marks and numbering system of Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18, which says all people are forced to to accept a mark and a number and basically worship the Antichrist and the number of his name in order to be a part of this economic system. And, uh, of course, the Bible uh, says that anybody who uh, takes that mark are, are eternally doomed. Their souls are eternally doomed. They cannot be, uh, they cannot be redeemed if they, if they take this mark and worship the Antichrist. And, and so that's where we believe that it's all leading. Um, that's one reason we believe that Satan has uh, been uh, instrumental in setting up this sort of a uh, failed economic system because there will have to be a reset of sorts. Um, that's just what the, that's what the secular uh, economic gurus have named it, uh, and in particular the globalists of Agenda 30 and all that kind of thing. The UN have named it as a this is a reset coming, and. Uh, and, uh, of course, they're talking about a secular reset coming uh, as part of their agenda. And uh, that's one reason that the United States, they want a United States sovereignty to come down because we have the whole world has got the dollar at the, as the basis currency of the world. This is going to have to be changed. The United States is going to have to have to ante up more. And Donald Trump, of course, wants to ante up, ante up less. And that would never do, and we saw the hatred that came against him day after day. So it's a globalist plot, a globalist plan, we believe. Anyway, I do. I believe it, and, and most of those who hold to the eschatological view that I hold believe that it's all a, a globalist plot uh, that is um, part of the coming Antichrist system, even though it's probably unwitting on the part of, uh, I doubt that uh, very many of the people on the globalist side realize uh, exactly who they're serving or what their ultimate purpose uh, or uh, right they, they, they may be they may think 
uh, that they are acting, not necessarily that they would make this connection, but they are being like a Joseph type in that they are doing their level best to try and ensure the survival of of humanity through this crisis. And the other thing that I I, want to point out is what this is not to suggest that that COVID is is a hoax or that it was was created by we don't know you know how it came about the point is that throughout history there are these crises are seized upon when they happen not necessarily we're not discussing how they happen but when they happen there is always uh an organization or a group of individuals that seize upon that crisis for, for their own agenda well, that's right. That's what that's what uh, uh, Wilford was talking about in the in the opening there. You you mentioned you read part of a uh, you know, good crisis. You know, uh, one of Obama's men said that you know never let a good crisis go to waste. That's uh, part of the Democrat philosophy. Uh, at least you know the um, the liberal Democrat, uh, the liberal side of the Democrat Party's philosophy is never let a good crisis go to waste. And certainly, however it came about, uh, the this Wuhan virus or the uh, COVID, whatever you want to call it, um, has certainly created a crisis. And of course, Satan is a is a plotter. He is a um, he's a chess player. He's going to lose. He's already lost. Jesus said he's finished on the cross, so he's already lost. But history's got to play out. And uh, he's a he's a plotter and is and a probably the most brilliant creature God ever created. when he before he fell, and so uh, he knows his this crisis was coming, whether he helped create it or not, I believe he did, uh, but uh, whether he did or not, he knew this crisis was coming, and certainly he is using it masterfully, I think, to lead the entire world into a into a globalist uh, uh, lockdown, a globalist uh, configuration, and uh, so it's playing out day by day. Only God's restraining hand will slow it. I think he slowed it for four years or so. And uh, his restraining hand seems to have been taken off just a bit here because I believe that God is about to let history wind up into its uh, final, uh, most final uh, configuration. And uh, so we we're going to have to move into globalism, the Bible says, a globalist type thing in order to bring about the Antichrist regime because that last seven years of, uh, as you said, the first three and a half years of tribulation, the sect half of Jacob's trouble, it's all tribulation but uh but uh it, everything is set up for that now we already see everything set up for it even even the electronic funds transfer system uh, out of which i believe will come I, the uh, uh, ultimately there's a reset so i, I we'll do want to get into the, uh, the 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 money snare as uh, as discussed in lawless end times war against the spirit of antichrist the general editor terry james my guest back with more in a moment stay with us When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Terry James, general editor of Lawless, End Times War Against the Spirit of Antichrist. Earlier we were talking about the parallels between 
uh, Joseph, and interpreter of dreams, of course, one of the 12 sons of Jacob in the, uh, the, the Bible, and uh, how he, he saved millions of lives during the seven years of famine. This happened 4,000 years ago, keep in mind. It's all uh, laid out in the book of Genesis, and, uh, which, and it's often been said and pointed out also in the foreword of the book how, how uh, basically the whole biblical narrative and human history is all summed up in Genesis. It's all laid out right there. So this parallel between how Joseph handled the famine, uh, you know, storing up uh, massive amounts of grain as a surplus during seven years of bounty and then to ride out the famine. He opened the uh, the granaries, but he didn't give it to people. He sold it to them. And when they were out of money, he took their cows and their cattle and their modes of transportation, horses and horses and donkeys, and everything went to Pharaoh, enriched the Pharaoh, became incredibly powerful. Uh, and, and, and when people had nothing left to barter for their grain, to eat bread, to make bread, to survive, they basically sold themselves into servitude to Pharaoh. And uh, for the rest of their lives, really. But rather than being angry at Joseph, I guess they were thankful. Uh, and here we are now with COVID. And uh, let me, again, just quickly crib here from the foreword of Lawless. It may well be asked if Joseph's actions indeed saved millions of lives, then does anything else matter? Wasn't the trade-off worth it? Putting entire populations into vassalage and widening even further the imbalances of the wealth distribution. That may appear to be the same type of situation faced by those who are currently making policy decisions about the public response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Should we save everyone from dying from the virus, but completely destroy the global economy and place massive debts upon the shoulders of citizens? How can it be ensured that the stimulus of massive new indebtedness created by fiat will be distributed fairly? Is everyone being forced into economic bondage? Attempts may be made to achieve fairness, but it would be foolishness to believe that mankind's, I like this line, primordial unfaithfulness with money will suddenly turn benevolent. Pharaoh, as we have shown, ended up being super rich. The same tendency is at work today, especially so when crises are seized as catalysts for major health heists and transfers. So, um, Terry, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this, you know, this money snare and how we are being sort of roped into accepting, I guess, what is ultimately the mark of the beast, right? But how do we know what the mark of the beast is? Because there, obviously there's, a, there's, a, there's going to be deception here. And for years, people thought that maybe the, the barcodes on certain products, oh, that's the mark of the beast. And then they thought computers or whatever. Uh, how do, if there's deception at play, how can someone be blamed or, or uh, sentenced to um, eternal damnation for taking the mark? Well, you would have to, you would have to pose that to the, the God of heaven who wrote the book. <laughs> I can't answer that. But I do know that it, it involves the fact that this will not just be accepting the mark uh, and, and in order to get into an economic system and survive that way. It will be because these people will will be turning themselves over in worship to Satan himself, who uh, will be indwelling the Antichrist, is, uh, according to that. He, co he will indwell the Antichrist at the midway point of the tribulation, three and a half years in the tribulation. He, he will go into the temple and declare himself to be God, 
And the false prophet, who is his sidekick, will demand everybody worship the beast or be killed. And uh, they can survive this system, either won't be beheaded or they won't starve it because they, um, they have refused the mark. If they take the mark, well, then uh, that is uh, agreeing to uh that is agreeing to uh to worship the antichrist rather than god and god says that that will make them unredeemable now whether it's the the mark itself once they take it that somehow changes their genetic code that destroys the redeemable soul or whatever well i don't know that that's uh far beyond my pay grade to know but uh god says it god's word says it i believe it uh it's going to happen and so it says in, it says in Revelation chapter 14 that uh, those who take the mark uh, have no chance to be redeemed. And uh, that's God's decision. That's God's uh, word on it. So, um, you know, we'll have to speculate beyond that. A lot of people think that, uh, you know, I've had, I don't know how many people, we have a, we have a uh, website, which is really, has been the largest website on the Internet for Bible prophecy called RaptureReady.com. And, and so we write columns there and everything, and um, our our emails are there. And, and people, I don't know how many people have written me uh, throughout the last uh, couple of months uh, asking about this uh, this vaccination. Is it the mark of the beast? Well, no, it's not. It, that won't happen until the church is gone from this sphere. Uh, the restrainer is gone, and uh, it says in Second Thessalonians chapter two that uh, as long as the restrainers are restraining uh, evil, uh, well, um, there's still a chance for redemption. Therefore, the mark of the beast is not... Uh, the, the Antichrist will not appear until after the church is gone, so uh, so uh, the system that he institutes cannot be prevalent. Therefore, this current vaccine uh, that everybody might be forced to take at some point is not, is not the mark of the beast. And your soul will still be redeemable. I'm not going to advise anybody on whether to take it or not. But uh, your soul, it will not affect your soul as far as as it's uh, being uh, redeemable or not. Ah, so this is interesting. The timing of the rollout, if you will, of the mark. The timing is crucial here. So the church has to fall away before the mark of the beast is introduced. Well, Um, fall away, that's an interesting term too, apostasia. Uh, the apostasy, the falling away. This this is taken two ways, and it and it. Let me tell you something. I studied it very in depth. I did a book on it, um, the departure. I call the book. And um, uh, again, we had several, a number of authors that wrote in this book. Uh, the the apostasy, the falling away here in Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, can mean two things. It can mean a spatial departure. Uh, which uh, is, would be the rapture of the church, I mean, literally disappearing, or it could mean a, a spiritual departure, departing from the faith. I think it has a, according to all I've read and the, the Greek words used in its, uh, in its writing, I believe that it includes both, uh, both a spatial departure, the rapture of the church, a falling away of the church, and, um, and I believe it also, uh, the spiritual departure, which I think we see happening, a, a defection of the faith. There's not nearly as much faith. Jesus said, when I return, will I find any faith on the earth? Uh, and that came from the Lord himself. So um, so this is interesting, but the fact is that um, that the church, in my estimation, I believe on pre-tribulation wrath, uh, rapture, 
is uh, that before God's wrath will fall on a degenerate, reprobate, and the rebellious world of the church will be taken out so that they will not, that is, all born-again believers, believers in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, will be taken out before uh, before that time of uh, wrath that must fall from God for the rebellion that uh, earth dwellers have against Him. And uh, so I think that's what Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is all about. So people who don't have to worry about uh, taking a vaccination from the standpoint of losing their redeemability. Now, how close are we? When you look at the, you know, the monetary steps that are being taken, how close do you feel we are to whatever currency or mark that, that uh, he, I guess, has in mind for us. How, how far are we along if we're looking at a clock? Are we one minute to midnight, the, five minutes? You know, the, the, the technology all exists right now for computer marks and numbers, and uh, I think that the technology ha- exists right now and has existed for some time. Now all we have to do is see the tearing down of national sovereignties and a, and a, uh, an imposition uh, through a reset or whatever of... Uh, of a global economic system that we already have electronic trans- transfer between central banks all across the world and banks all across the world, but uh, but still we have cash and we have uh, we have other ways and the dollar is still the uh, still the uh, uh, basic uh, uh, monetary uh, currency of, of the world and these things are going to have to come down and we see them being taken apart day by day. Uh, at least from my uh, from my perspective, so we're very close. I would say that uh, the next event on God's prophetic calendar uh, that there is no sign that precedes it must precede the rapture of the church, and that's the next thing is, uh, and that's what's going to bring everything crashing down. I believe, and I think Jesus pointed this out in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter twenty-four, verses thirty-six through forty-two, and he said it would be just like the days of Noah in the days of Lot, and the very day that Lot went out of Sodom, was taken out of Sodom by the angels to Zor, that very day judgment began to fall. And Jesus said it would be just like that the next time that uh, he cast it catastrophically intervenes. That, that, uh, oh, the Lord all right, Terry, I have, to, I, have to, I have to take a, a quick time out here. We'll come back. I want to talk about another crisis that some believe is being seized upon by globalists and by extension, I guess, the uh, the forces uh, involved in the spirit of Antichrist, and that is, of course, uh, climate change. Is that, in fact, another such crisis being used to further uh, the spirit of Antichrist? We'll come back and discuss further with Terry James, general editor of Lawless End Times War against the spirit of Antichrist right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Lawless, End Times War Against the Spirit of Antichrist, Terry James is general editor, and this is uh, published by Defender Publishing. And uh, incidentally, you can um, you can find this book and other books by Terry James, including ones that he's co-authored with Thomas Horns at Skywatch. TV.com, Thomas Horn, rather, uh, SkywatchTV.com. And um, we were talking about uh, how these uh, globalists seize upon these crises. And um, the other one, of course, that we hear so much about is 
global warming, which then later turned into climate change because, well, they kind of moved the goalposts when uh, the the modeling wasn't working out the way they they said it would, and water levels, sea levels weren't rising. They they stopped calling it global warming and started calling it climate change. Um, so, do you also see that as as part of this spirit of the Antichrist? Well, yes, I do. I believe that's going to be the mantra around which. Uh the false prophet is going to build his um, his uh, false religious system once uh, the church is gone from this earth. It says in Revelation chapter 17, of course, that the harlot, the harlot about the uh, prophecy of the harlot riding the beast. That's a false uh, a false religious worship system. Uh, again, Grand Christ is going to demand worship, uh, and uh, this is going to be the system that his sidekick the. Uh, I guess you would say the Pope of his uh, his religious system uh, is going to uh, implement, and I think that it's going to be uh, let's say Mother Earth, Mother Earth worship is going to be uh, the mantra around which this thing is being built, and I think that is the reason we see so much uh, clamor over climate change now, uh, the Paris Accords and all of this, and we've been seeing all of this, and they threw such a fit. When Trump took uh, you know, America, for example, out of this, quit quit sending so much money to uh, to pump this thing up and so forth. There's always been climate change. It is true. We, we it's cyclical, and uh, and uh, we know that uh, there's going to be climate change. But uh, they're saying that mankind, of course, is destroying the planet through uh, the use of uh, excessive. Um, Carbohydrate, carbohydrate, uh, well, carbon, carbon dioxide. Yeah, yeah carbon dioxide. And all this kind, of, yeah, that kind of thing. And uh, and so, um, you know, the carbon footprint. They want the nations of the world to play the car, pay the carbon footprint tax. Now it's funny they don't ask India or China to pay it uh, because they know they won't. China in particular, but they want America's billions to pay it. And they threw a fit when Donald Trump took uh, the United States out of this. Again, American sovereignty has to come down, and this climate change mantra—it's it's, it's a it's a religious uh, worship system, a secular religious worship system—and and so we're going to, we've got to save the planet, which is absolutely nonsense. Only man can destroy this planet. Only only man can save it. They say, well, no, God's in complete control of this planet at all times. He created it. Only He can save it or destroy it. Now. Uh... I mean, I, I, I'm on the same page. I, I think that the, um, the evidence for man-made global warming or man-made climate change simply is not there. And we, we don't need to, you know, debate that now or go into it. I think we're on the same page. But I'm wondering, and I'm also speaking as an Orthodox Christian, do we not put ourselves in a bit of a difficult situation by um, sounding like we're anti-environment, but also things like uh, sustainable development, and which, again, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an innocuous-sounding term, but the, the devil is in the details. Things like social justice. Again, what does that mean? Justice for whom and at whom's exp- who's his exp- who's expense? But I'm wondering, like, how do, we, do you um, respond to critics who, who, who say that Christians are being intolerant or you're anti-environment or you're anti uh, poverty, uh, or uh, sorry, you're 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 um, you're you're not fighting poverty, or you're not f- fighting for the environment, or you're not fighting for social justice. 
How do you respond to that? Well, that's just ridiculous. Uh, we Christians are put at the very heart of the the Christian message that we're to love people more than love people more than ourselves. That's the first commandment. I mean, the second commandment. First, to love thy God with all thy heart, and the and the second is to love people, uh, your neighbors like yourself. Love love them like you do like you do God. So that's ridiculous. We put uh, you know the churches church organizations have traditionally done tremendous work to help people uh and to say that we don't uh care for the environment is just absolutely ludicrous we have to live here and breathe the air too of course we do we just don't believe that you have to uh, tax people to death in order to to enrich your coffers particularly at the apex of uh, government in order to so so that bloated bureaucracies can can have uh, have a easy way of life in order to uh in order to uh, to make the environment clean and so forth, we should all do our part. We're we're totally for that, uh, but this is Satan's way of saying, you know, accusing Christians. Well, you don't you don't like people. You're against people. You're against a, a clean planet. Well, that's absolutely it's just a lie. He's the father of lies, and the people who fall for that mantra, they're they're his children if they if they believe that and, and follow his line. It's it's all lies. And uh, I'm a I'm a Christian man. I'm almost 79 years old now, and uh, all of my life I've been taught my parents from the time I was a child that you should respect your your environment. You should clean up after yourself if you go out. You don't throw milk cartons after your, at your recess, whatever on the ground. You pick them up. You put them in. And besides that, if you didn't, uh, your teachers would have you by your ear and. Uh, would show you that you do so but see all of that's changed now you can't do that in schools anymore you know you can't you can't teach moral principles anymore like that as, as much as you used to you got to do the ridiculous things like that you can have any be any sex you want to be you can go to any bathroom you want to go and all well, that okay other, we, uh, terry i've got to i got to jump in here uh, we got to uh, take a time out um and uh we will pick it up on the other side One more segment to go. We'll take some questions and comments as well from our YouTube live chat. Terry James, Lawless, the spirit of the Antichrist, right here. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Just a reminder, coming up at the top of the hour, Steve Asher will be uh, with us to discuss, well, he's a folklorist, and we'll get into some high strangeness from the great state of Kentucky. Terry James stays with us a few moments yet. Lawless, end times war against the spirit of Antichrist. A couple of questions here, Terry, from our YouTube live chat, and uh, we have some interesting handles here. People don't give their, their real names. Stardust Freedom Journey asks... Uh, how are you personally preparing for the end times, uh, Terry? Well, first, the very first thing I I am prepared uh, for the end times is to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, because He's the only hope we have. Jesus uh, is, is the blessed hope of Titus two thirteen, looking for our Lord and Savior, the blessed hope from heaven to rescue us from the coming of the wrath to come, and the end times involves um, God's wrath against. Uh, uh, rebellion, uh, and uh, that's what's going to happen. The last seven years, as you mentioned, the tribulation era, uh, ending with the last three and a half years of God's 
wrath of pouring out in 21 specific judgments. Uh, there was the seals, the um, trumpets, and the bowl's wrath, the judgments that are plainly laid out, and it's not pleasant to think about. So the first thing to do is to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And, um, and as far as prepping, you can't prep for a thing like that if you're going to go into that, uh, into that setting, that tribulation. Uh, God, Jesus said himself in, in Matthew 24, uh, all of that discourse account, he said that it's going to be a time like there never was before, never would be again, and so horrible would it be. Nobody would, no flesh would survive, he said, if he didn't return when he did. So Jesus Christ is the hope, and that's how I'm preparing. I'm, I'm relying on him. So, in other words, there's no point in trying to ride it out by by um, storing food and and fresh water the way that, you know, when Joseph was managing the famine in Egypt, no. building up food stores. There's not no. enough food in the world to save you. So, it's good to do that in this on this side of the tribulation. It's good for crises. Like we did in Arkansas, we just had 24 inches of snow or 20 inches of yes. snow. Very unusual here, and we we needed those kind of supplies. Right. So if for those that do take the mark and they are continue, they are allowed to continue to work within the uh, the, the beast system, if you will, and, and continue to work and feed their families and so forth, um, they, they'll be they'll be riding out the tribulation. Is that the idea until the final judgment or will they, too, be deceived and end up being destroyed? Well, if they take that mark, they are unredeemable. Uh, and I don't know how they're going to feed their. If, if you're forced to take the take the mark and worship the beast, and it says they will either take the mark or be killed. Well, it says that millions are going to be uh, uh, martyred at that time uh, by beheading. Others are going to be starved out of the system uh, because they're trying to hide or whatever. And uh, and so it's just a, it's a very untenable situation. That's why people need to know the Lord now before the tribulation, accept Him as Savior now. So they don't have to go through this time. And what is, what is your view on uh, the rapture? For those that refuse to take the mark, uh, will they be raptured? Will they be spared the worst aspects of Jacob's troubles, the tribulation? No, the rapture comes before the tribulation begins. See, that's uh, that's pre-tribulation rapture, and the tribulation will come. But the rapture will come first uh, before this uh, the church is removed. Uh, is the time for salvation. That's the time to call on Christ. Now, many will be saved after the tribulation, but they'll have to endure uh, during that era. And uh, God will, I'm sure, protect his own in his own way at that time. But many will be killed, but not their souls destroyed. If they're, right. if, they, if they're saved after, after, the, after the tribulation begins. So how is, it, how is it decided, do you suppose, who will be swept up in the pre-tribulation rapture and and those who who are still believers but will have to ride out the 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 tribulation all who go into the tribulation if you read the bible carefully all who go into the tribulation are lost there will be nobody going into the tribulation who is saved uh there will be many saved afterwards because there'll be 144,000 jewish witnesses that will uh, administer the gospel to people, and they'll believe, and they will be saved in. But going into the tribulation, when the, when the church is removed, every every believer is removed. Every believer in Christ is removed. And uh, then uh, that's when uh, God's uh, wrath and the wrath of the Antichrist in this beastly system will begin. But there will be many saved during the tribulation era. 
But see, I believe, and I, the Bible, I believe the Bible teaches this is God's character. There won't be one baby left on this planet, one child below, below the age of accountability left on this planet. That'll be another maddening thing. That is something that is incomprehensible. But God's character says that uh, that you must be able to have the ability to accept or reject uh, the offer, God's grace offer, grace gift offer, the Christ dying on the cross. You have to be able to accept that or reject it. And a child or a person who has never had the opportunity, uh, never had the understanding to accept or reject, well, they will go in the rapture too. So God will treat them as if they are saved. And uh, so there will be no... Um, uh, uncharacteristic, uh, uh, treat, bad treatment of people. Uh, God is fair in all of his dealings. He's perfect character. How do you suppose those that are left behind will, and those who are in charge from the, you know, the beast system, how they will explain to the, to the rest of the people what happened to the millions of people that were raptured? Will will they will they may will they say that this was some sort of a massive alien abduction or what will they say? Do you think? I think I think it will be part of that. That will be part of it. I think it will be uh, you know all these UFO sightings we see we see some really strange ones here lately, and they've become more prevalent. I've written three novels on this kind of thing. It's um, of course that's fiction, but uh, but yeah, I believe it'll be part. Of, you know, we hear more and more evolution replaced by the seed theory now if you watch documentaries and listen and that is that we were put here by an alien uh, an alien uh, type uh, uh, species and uh, we were seeded here uh, and uh, and so we have been growing apart and we've been observed by them and now that we are about to destroy the planet through nuclear war or whatever uh, they're coming back, and uh, I think that's going to be part of it. And they took all people who don't don't agree or are too hard-headed, like me, for example, that they've taken. When the rapture occurs, I believe they're going to be believe that they've taken us off somewhere and and re-educating us, uh, or just simply getting rid of us. And I think that's going to be part of the explanation. Now there may be there's probably a lot more than that that I have no comprehension of at this point. Uh. Let's see here. D Silver in the YouTube live chat just wants some clarification on the difference between the Antichrist and Satan. We just have about two minutes here, Terry. So what's the difference between Antichrist and Satan? Okay, Antichrist, uh, Satan is Lucifer, the fallen one. He led the rebellion of one-third of the angels of heaven uh, back before man was ever uh, created. And he was cast out of heaven. He became the devil, Satan and the devil. So he is a fallen angel. Antichrist will be a man. He will be a man like Adolf Hitler or whoever, a great leader that uh, that will be chosen uh, to uh, by Satan to uh, to uh, be the Antichrist to lead this beast in uh, beastly kingdom during the tribulation era. I believe he may be a Nephilim, and I can't explain that right now. Cause I don't have time probably, but. Um, I believe he will not have a soul. Uh, I think he's unsavable. But uh, he and he will be um, uh, a man, a human being. And uh, Satan is, of course, a fallen angel. And he will, Satan will, as a spirit, indwell this man at the halfway point of the tribulation era. So that's the difference. And and he may be, or at least likely, uh, here now among us. He may not know his 
his role, correct? He may, a lot of, but he yeah, may be active. We've had many, many people have, <laughs> they've speculated on who the, who the Antichrist is. You know, they thought Reagan might have been, or a lot of other people, JFK, a lot of other people. And now they're saying Emmanuel Macron, the, um, the French president, maybe. But I don't believe, I don't believe any of them's right. Says that he won't be revealed in Second Thessalonians. He won't be revealed until the church is removed, and uh, so uh, then he will be revealed, and Christ will destroy him with uh, the brightness of his coming at the end of Armageddon. All right. Again, the book is Lawless End Times War Against the Spirit of Antichrist, and uh, that's available again through SkywatchTV.com, also Amazon.com. Terry, great meeting you, and thank you so much for this. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. All right. God bless. Steve Asher awaits on the other side. High strangeness from Kentucky right here on The Conspiracy Show. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Folklorist Steve Asher is here to do uh, share some of his wonderful collection of stories. High Strangeness from Kentucky uh, is where we're headed. Uh, that's not the name of the book, uh, incidentally. That's just, um, that's kind of... Steve Asher's beat, High Strangeness, from his home state, the Bluegrass State. And Kentucky happens to be one of my uh, my favorite states. I love Tennessee. I love Virginia, West Virginia. I guess you would call that all Appalachia. I'm not sure if North Carolina is considered Appalachia. Steve will know. I'll get him here in here in a moment. But uh, so many strange stories come out of th- this area. Uh, the Mothman Prophecies, of course, or The Mothman from West Virginia, the movie The Mothman Prophecies, will be m- familiar to most of you. Uh, Bigfoot sightings, of course, uh, UFOs, stories of little people, uh, some great haunted locations there. Uh, and In fact, Steve has written about some of these, the Kentucky State Penitentiary, the Western Lunatic Asylum, the St. Vincent Academy. That's his uh, haunted Kentucky series of three books so we'll find out why is it that kentucky and appalachia um seem to be home to so much high strangeness what is it about this part of the country uh before we get started i also want to mention that if you if you happen to follow me on social media twitter or gab at richard Serrett, or on facebook which is strange planet media i believe strange planet media or Instagram, Richard underscore Sarrett, then you know by now that I am starting a brand new radio program on another station up the dial uh, on Tuesday, actually, day after tomorrow or day after today. Today's officially Monday, um, Tuesday, March the 2nd, Saga 960 a.m. Uh, and it'll be thereafter. It'll be Monday to Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. The Drive Home Show, Saga 960 a.m., and uh, the good news is I'm going to continue to do this show Sunday nights. So I'll be doing both. And let me just take this moment to uh, to thank Moses Neimer and uh, uh, Paul Thomas and everyone here 
at uh, Zoomer Radio for their and Zoomer Media for their support and their generosity in allowing me to do both. You know, I've worked with other radio stations over the years, and there was a certain amount of, I don't know if petty is the right word, but they didn't want you talking about other radio stations. They didn't want you dealing with them. And the fact that they are allowing me to do this show on Sunday, in addition to my new program, which launches Tuesday, May, uh, Tuesday March the 2nd, uh, just sp- speaks volumes about their their character and again their their support and generosity, which I felt every single day. Uh, now going on twelve years at this radio station. So now that I'm doing that show, and that is going to be kind of a straight up news opinion analysis of the news uh, interview type show. On this show, Sunday nights at eleven Eastern. I can focus on conspiracies and the paranormal and all the things that you're telling me you want to hear on this program. So we're going to get to some of that right now. As I mentioned, Stephen E. Asher is a native of Princeton, Kentucky. He's also a published author with multiple books to his credit. He's an artist, a podcast host, a musician. He's a fan of horror and paranormal subjects, and previously Steve worked over 10 years in law enforcement and as a correction, a correctional officer. He's a longtime researcher of the strange and the unusual. He's traveled worldwide in a pursuit to learn the legends of folklore and from other cultures. He's an avid lover of the nighttime. He's, he always says that this is the time when he feels most truly alive in the darkness and therefore most productive in his paranormal research and writing. Steve, great to have you back on the program. How are you, my friend? Well, Richard, uh, always an honor to be here. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. What is a folklorist, actually? What's, what is it that a folklorist does? Well, it touches on a whole lot of different uh, sciences, but uh, more or less, it's, you've got to have somebody that's curious about things. Uh, they love getting into those little quirky, uh, you know, like again, legends and all that stuff that ties in with the the old. A lot of times it's the old ways. A lot of these are really old legends, and you just you develop a love for them. If you grew up, like you said, in Appalachian area, or you don't have to be Appalachian, but it helps. But if you love sitting at your uh, uncles or grand grandmas listening to stories from back in the back in the day and sometimes they would turn kind of scary um folklore maybe for you it's just one of those things because a lot of times there's a kernel of truth in those type of things it's different from urban legends uh because a lot of times it was connected to an actual event you know sometimes urban legends could just be you know kind of creepy pasta stuff but more often than not folklore tied into history i'm i'm a big history buff i love it and it sort of gives you kind of a different different take on history. It's not always the history that you get in the history book. Sometimes it's from the voice of the other side or from another another take on it. So it's, an, it's sort of an interesting way to be well-rounded. If you Again, if you love hearing stories, especially you're into the oral tradition or love to read. And, and you and I have talked about this before, but let me just get your take on it one more time. And that is why... And I mentioned this in the introduction, Appalachia seems to be so f- fertile for not only this folklore, but also, um, you know, sightings of uh, Bigfoot and, and UFOs and uh, 
dogmen and different cryptids, but also uh, haunted locations. And you've covered those off with uh, St. Vincent Academy and the Western Lunatic Asylum and the Kentucky State Penitentiary. Why Appalachia and Kentucky specifically? Part of it is that I don't know. Uh, for me, it's common knowledge. It's just like if you know you live down, you know, in the middle of New York, you would know where the best sub place is or the best pizza, you know, pizza pie places. We know legends and hollows that are supposedly haunted and, and different weird things, and uh, it's just what it is. People think of places like the uh, the rainforest or places like that where very few people have ever been in. Appalachia is very much like it. It's it's almost impossible to get to certain regions up there, and uh, that causes a whole lot of uh, problems, but it also causes a certain type of culture, and this culture comes from all the different, you know, the Welsh and the English and the Irish and all those wonderful uh, brands of storytelling that came with these guys and, and a lot of their uh, their own mythologies and, and superstitions and practices. It's uh, it very much is sort of a looking, looking you know, look, looking at through the looking glass into sort of another time in a way where people didn't communicate in tweets and you know my people will call your people. It was very personal, and um, for me, it's it's very very heartfelt uh, because again you know that's where my now my family comes from. Uh, when they settled in this region. So it's always had a very special place for me. But it's, it is a very mysterious place. There's a lot of places, um, you know, you think of Washington State. You think of, well, Bigfoot and things like that. You think West Virginia, Mothman, stuff like that. And we have that here as well. You know, uh, not counting, like as we mentioned before on, on some other shows, giant skeletons, you know, things like that. Um, you know, all kinds of different cryptids, all kinds of different... Uh, ancient drawings and glyphs that were found in caves that may point to a previous civilization living here. And most people think of Kentucky, you know, uh, for horse racing or maybe really good bourbon. And, and like I'd said in, on the back of uh, my Curious Counties for Kentucky, uh, dang strange and mostly true tales, uh, if you think that Kentucky is only horse racing and good bourbon, if so, boy, were you wrong. I mean, there's so much more to it. And, and that's what I love about it. I love I love stories from everywhere, but I love to showcase stories from my home. Well, you mentioned the title, Curious Counties from Kentucky, Dang, Strange, and Mostly True Tales. I love that word, dang. Uh, now, it's it's interesting the way you've put this book together, because it's um, you've listed, I think, every single county in Kentucky, uh, or nearly all of them. Every one of them seems to have one of these dang, strange, and mostly true tales. And you've done it sort of, well, you've done it alphabetically, right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm almost done and ready to publish a follow-up because it's in two volumes. Uh, there was 120 counties. I did 60 counties in each. And, yeah, that, that one's almost ready to go. But, yeah, it is all alphabetical. And it does seem, even if uh, it's a, a relatively small county, maybe not a whole lot's happened in it in regards of it's fairly, uh, fairly rural, hard to access, there's some strange story. You know, every little county, anywhere you have people, you're going to have a weird story or at least a weird legend about a location, you know, Crybaby, Crybaby Bridge, things like that. And that's why I said dang strange and mostly true tales, because some of these I can't verify. Some of these are, again, oral tradition. Uh, it, nothing, none of, this was written down, and 
you take it as what it is, a, a good story, hopefully a great story, and uh, have some fun with it. All right. So in no particular order, we're not going to do it alphabetically, but uh, not County, Kentucky, N-O-T-T, not County, Kentucky. Um, uh, tell me about, well, there's a there's a highway there, fi- Highway 55. It's just out of, uh, is it Hindman or Hindman? Hindman, uh, Highway 50. Oh, Highway 50. And there is a, yeah. um, a famous restaurant there called the Blue Moon Restaurant. Tell me about the Blue Moon Restaurant. Right. Well, again, uh, Knott County was formed around 1884, and it's a pretty small population, about 17,000. And uh, it, it's one of about 30 different unincorporated uh, towns in that area is, is just outside of uh, Hinman. Uh, so anyway, you come out this road, and the Blue Moon Restaurant, most people would know it from it was kind of a speakeasy. They would make bathroom, you know, wash tub gin and whiskey. And it was one of those deals where, you know, illegal hooch or prostitution and kind of like a, you know, saloon. Think of like a, a, a frontier town saloon because people have to remember before we had the old west, we had the old <laughs> partially east, partially middle, middle of the country. And it just pushed out that way. So we had all that stuff right here before it moved out west. And uh, again, it was very famous for kind of nefarious activities. Well, one of the people who lived there was a mother of a guy we've you've actually had a really interesting shows on about Charles Manson, and him and his mother lived on the second floor there. And his mother was a prostitute, and she would do what she had to do. And unfortunately, she would have the little boy sat out on the stoop. I mean, all hours of the night. And if he tried to get in because it was cold or something, apparently she would beat him or the guys would beat him. And it kind of goes to explain a little bit about how this guy became who he became. And obviously, you know, his, his crimes and things that happened in California, you, you can't fully blame that because there's people that's come through darkness and, and went another way. But it's Correct. just interesting how the, the webs of uh, all these different events connect to make that future monster. So right, I thought it was a right. very interesting place. Right. Now, is that is the Blue Moon restaurant, is it still there? Do we know the, its exact location on Highway 50? Honestly, I'm not 100% sure if it's still standing. Uh, I guarantee you could probably speak to somebody at the uh, at the county courthouse or something like that, and they could let you know, A, if it's standing or where the structure was. Uh, they might even have – it might, may even be a, a historical monument with, with it being a speakeasy. Uh, I don't think they would have had anything about Manson there, I don't think. But I'm sure somebody with an interest in Manson has probably made a pilgrimage there, like a, you know, like you see people go to the Gacy house and different scenes of uh, horrendous humanity. But right. uh, the exact location, I'm not 100% sure, other than it was on Highway 55, just outside of Hinman. Right. And so he spent his his formative years, I guess you could say, in this little place in Kentucky, how do the, the people of Knott County, Kentucky, sort of view that little bit of, well, it's not folklore, it's, it, 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 we know it happened. I mean, yeah, are they, exactly. are they he- hesitant to talk about it? They don't want to make that connection between Knott County and Charlie Manson, understandably? Any city official is going to try to put the, the brightest and most positive face forward on any situation. And I get that. Uh, your selling point isn't want to be, you know, hey, this is where, you know, a famous uh, person connected to mass murderers were. Um, if you dig in, in 
get to know the people well enough, they'll open up and talk about it. It's sort of like uh, like the one story we talked about, the Kentucky meat rain. Most people half the time don't know about it because they don't teach it in school there. It was a really weird thing, and they prefer not to celebrate that. You know, these are church-going folks, and they're trying to put a positive foot forward. And, and that's just, you know, like I've always heard, if I had a quarter for every time I heard this in my research, well, that's just sort of not the sort of thing that we, we like to talk about. But I've found from just readership, people love to read about it because, you know, they can kind of visit this in in an educational way, not so titillating or sensationalist, but in a way that is brought to you in a clean family-based way. But it tells you about some really interesting stuff, and it's not all harsh story stuff in these counties, but there is a certain interest in this sort of thing, especially when you see this young fragile kid, at-risk kid, that there was really no infrastructure to care for these type of kids, especially back in the like the 30s, 30s, 40s, right? So, because he was already, I believe in his 30s by the time he met these girls in the 60s. I mean, he'd already been in right. out, of, out of institutions his whole life. And, right, uh, right. So, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy, which, of course, then that ties all into his experimentation with supposed uh, Manchurian candidate stuff, which we could go down a whole rabbit hole with that. But you know what I mean? Sure, it's, sure. It's interesting to right. see what came before. Well, another era, and had he been in another location in Kentucky, he may have well ended up at the St. Vincent Academy, right? Honestly, he very well may. Or you know what? If he had got the proper, the proper care, uh, who knows? Uh, I mean, he may have ended up at the Western Lunatic Asylum, or he may have ended up becoming clergyman. He, he was a very good orator, and um, he could have possibly went on to become a priest or something. Who knows? Right. So uh, take us down to Kenton County, Kentucky. Um, right here that uh, on 22nd Wright Street, uh, there is uh, a bunch of row housing. And you can find these all across the globe, of course. We're all familiar with row housing. But only a handful have an unusual flying saucer design such as this one. What's going on in uh, Kenton County, Kentucky? Well, and it's so odd because, like you said, it, it's sort of just – very out of place, because like you said, it, it was, most of this stuff was built in the time of the old cookie cutter right after World War II, the GI Bill. Everybody gets a house. You know, it was back in those days. But uh, Futuro homes, uh, you will see these all over the globe. And some of them are fairly simple. Some are pretty uh, futuristic, like what people in the 50s and the 40s thought today would be like. And uh, that particular one looks just like a spaceship. It looks like something you would see on a, on a set of a, of a B, a B movie, uh, a sci-fi movie. And it's very, very interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's see, I believe it came out because the man had it shipped there, I think in 1973. And, uh, I think by the time, uh, I think it was by the time it was 1976, it was finally set up and everything. And it stayed there. And it's actually funny because it actually has a, uh, on the hatchway, a sticker saying, beam me up, Scotty, on it. So they definitely went with the sort of positive, hopeful vibe of the 60s, you know, that Star Trek very much captured, even if they took on darker subjects. But, yeah, it's, it's really very an interesting place. I think it would be neat to own that. You know, if I was ever to move up in that area, I'd definitely be looking to see if that property was available. Uh, it's just, to me, it's just a really interesting story. It's nothing nefarious or dark about it. 
It's just, again, who would have thought that would have been in the middle of Kentucky somewhere? So I thought it was kind of right. a neat story. Have you been inside the uh, the row housing spaceship? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, I've seen tons of pictures and stuff. They're very, very quirky with who goes in there because they don't want to mess with or made fun of or defaced. So they, they keep it pretty, pretty tight, you know. So it's one of those deals, again, you kind of protect what you love. You don't want people to make fun of it and, or just, you know, deface it. But I would definitely would. Yeah, I'd love to tour it. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes here. We can start talking about this, and if we run if we run into the break, we'll continue after. But uh, Jessamine County, Kentucky, we often hear about ghostly lights. Um, tell me about this spot. Uh, I guess it's near Lexington, uh, Kentucky, and um, there's some uh, location there known as the North Tower. It's been the site of many suicides and accidental falls and ghostly lights. Right. Well, this location is in the Lexington metropolitan area. There's about 50,000 people uh, currently that live there. It's, it's about 451 square uh, kilometers. Uh, it's, it's a good-sized area. And, again, most people think of it for its horse breeding and its connection with that type of trade. There was a lot of stuff there, like the Camp Nelson Heritage National Monument, which is a great big uh, Civil War-era site. And things like that. There's Veterans Park, uh, the Jessamine Creek Gorge, and the uh, Waveland State Historic Sites. So there's a lot of different stuff going on there. But there's a place um, known as North Tower, and it has a very high bridge. It was built in, I think, 1888, and it's about 300 foot tall. Uh, it's a train bridge, and it, and it spans across the Palisades. And it is a national landmark, but it has been the site of a lot of deaths from falls, and it is unclear if these are accidents or suicides, but people do report a lot of fleeting shadows along the tracks and lights that disappear off, like off into the edge, off the edge and like say into the, into the darkness at night. It's usually nighttime when these are seen, and cause some people say, well, perhaps it's a train or something like that, but it's, it, it just isn't, you know, it's got something totally else something totally going on that is just really wonky and to me it's super super interesting all right we will uh take a quick time out come back steve asher folklorist and uh, continue to delve into curious counties in kentucky tales of high strangeness with this wonderful writer back with more in a moment stay with us Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, we uh, apparently have lost temporary contact with Steve Asher. So, Steve, if you're still in the, well, he wouldn't hear me because he um, uh, he's on the uh, the live stream, but he has the computer muted. Anyway, I, I I think he's probably starting to restart his phone. He's on a cell phone. He will get Steve back here in a moment. But uh, we are talking about his latest collection of folklore and uh, legends and tales of high strangeness curious counties uh in kentucky uh dang uh strange tales and mostly or dang but mostly true tales 
uh, we have we have Steve back. Are you there, Steve? I am here, sir. All right. You know, you mentioned bourbon and and uh, the horse trade. Of course, Kentucky's certainly known for that. But you're also known as having uh, uh, an incredible uh, cave systems throughout Kentucky. And let me ask you uh, before we get into some of these stories revolving around caves: Are you a a bit of a spelunker, or uh, tell me about your uh, interest in caves? Well, it's it's. Uh... It's sort of that thing where you really love the idea of it and want to see all these interesting things under there, but I'm also claustrophobic. So it sort of runs that for me. Um, I went into some relatively open cave systems, into some, you know, uh, maintained uh, type of situations, you know, where, you know, for, for visit people to visit, you know, as part of tourism. But as I've just cutting out and going into a cave no this now i know too many weird things that's down there and not not to just mentioning snakes and things like that well i don't know that um you and i have talked about this i think maybe on my podcast and i don't know that it's in the list of the stories you sent me tonight but i think you have a, a some cousins or something that went spelunking and they they came across uh um was it a burial site or something do you remember the story I do. I believe that was Nightmares from the Bone Cave. Um, right, I believe right. that was the name of that. And that actually, yes, that, that was some family. And that was, man, that was such a messed up, uh, messed up story. This, this guy would go into cave systems, you know, and sometimes you'd find arrowheads or bits of pottery and things like that. And it wasn't anything nefarious. It's just sometimes you'd find something kind of neat. And that's where it kind of went wrong. I think it was actually chapter six was the, uh, was the chapter from that. And the, the young guy went in there and he was messing around and finding this and that. And like you mentioned, we do have a very large karst system. And a karst system more or less means we're living on Swiss cheese. That's why we have tons of sinkholes and things like that around here, a uh, fair amount of flooding. Because after a while, when it rains real hard here, like it has tonight, there's a lot of roads that are flooded out in this area because the caves fill up and there's nowhere to go. So, but yes, was looking around and had found some interesting things in the back of a cave. Uh, there's areas under Big Springs, Kentucky. It's not a secret, so I can tell you. In the heart of Princeton. And you can used to be able to get up under it. It's filled with silt a little bit. But before that, you could kind of dig out and get down there. And you'd find just interesting stuff. You might find old bottles from the old bottling company. You might find an old uh, service revolver, an old Civil War revolver. Just, you know, may not be in good shape, but it's just an interesting thing to find. Bits of spar or whatnot. Anyway, but he was digging around back in this area and found this area where the wall wasn't granite or limestone. It almost was, looked like red mud. It was really weird. Um, and he'd felt something poking out of it. And he thought, well, maybe that's a bullet or it's a, you know, something kind of interesting. Well, he got that, and he ended up crawling back out because it started raining. And he don't want to, you don't want to get caught in the caves when it rains. So he got on out. Well, he uh, took this thing home. It was kind of encrusted and had the most horrible nightmares, just horrible nightmares. And it, it was real disjointed, very smoky. It, he wasn't sure if something was on fire or what. 
but it was almost like you were had a fire going in a cave, which of course is going to illuminate everything and have flickering shadows everywhere. It was very, very disorienting. Well, this went on for a night or two. He didn't think much about it because he had to work some doubles and whatnot. Well, he ended up coming home, taking a look at this thing, and he said, I don't know what to do. So he went and spoke to a brother of mine, and he said, uh, I don't know what to do. He said, well, what's going on? Before he ever t- showed him what he had, he told him the situation, told him the story. He says, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a, what it is. It's not a bullet. I don't know if it's some sort of bone tool or something like that, or if it's a what, you know. But he looked at it, and he said, I think it's, I think you've got a piece of human finger. It looks like a kid's finger. And a finger bone. Is, a finger, a finger bone? bone? A child's oh. finger bone. And he, he's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And he's like, you need to put it back. You know, if it was me, I'd put it back, say I'm sorry, and get out. Try to re reintern it. So, because it's like, you know, do I go speak to a tribal person? And then, of course, he was scared to get in trouble. Anyway, long story short, he got back up in there. He, it was after the rains. Things were still fairly slick, but he just got back to that spot. And he's trying to kind of get it pushed back into, the, into what apparently was clay, uh, a piece of clay. But when he pushed, it went on down. He, he, it fell forward. He didn't expect it to do that. He rolled down into, you know, these limbs and whatnot. I guess figured it was like a, some sort of animal cave, fox cave, something. Well, his lamp had went off. In, in the fall, so he finally had gotten it and was trying to get himself put back. He put it, he said, I'm sorry, and this and that, he's moving back forward. And for whatever reason, he turned around. He got his helmet light back on, looked back, and he said there were, just, there was a lot of dust in the air, but he could see because he'd crowed through and crushed a bunch of stuff. He said there were like hundreds of bones, like human bones. He said it appeared to be human bones. So, Apparently, he pushed stuff back, pulled the back the best he could, and he got out of there. Uh, I've never learned a location. I don't want to go to it, but that was right here in uh, in Princeton. That's actually from Short Stories for Darker Nights, the the other book that I had put out just recently. And right, um, right. that that was really sobering. I don't know what happened. I don't know if that was a mass burial place that was that the natives put there. I don't know if something really hard, horrible happened and they were put there to, to be hidden. I, I, I don't know. So you mentioned when he brought that artifact, which turned out to be a, a human finger bone home, he started experiencing some kind of paranormal activity. I would have to say it's it. Yeah. I mean, cause he was hearing, you know, sounds and kind of like stuff beating. I'm not going to say there were drums beating. I'm, I'm, you know, but, that's his interpretation. That's what he made it made of it. Um, I didn't. I didn't really laugh out laugh about it when I heard it. I didn't hear about it for a while because uh, it was told to my brother. And years later, you know, he was talking about. I was talking about the cave systems, writing about the caves. And I said, he said, did I ever tell you what? Well, I almost said his name. Let's just say uh, Gator. Hey, did I tell you what Gator said about those caves over there? I'm like, no. And he told me the story. I'm like. Jesus, did he ever go back? He says, no, no, no. Actually, he quit, ga- he quit caving after that. He quit caving as a result. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, really strange. Uh, but... Well, you know, I hear a lot of, um, of stories, paranormal stories, hauntings, uh, the, the sudden appearance of 
strange uh, or cryptids. And often it seems to be in connection with the disturbance of an Indian burial mound. So what's happening there, do you suppose? And, well, in that particular situation, are you mean just uh, statewide? Because we have tons and tons of mounds and a lot of different things that are found there. Uh, sometimes it, it adds up to what you would think. Um, you know, if you go further back, of course, you're going to certain bones will be like the body who broke down and the bones will be coated in red ochre and put in the ground, I guess, as sort of a ceremonial thing. But again, when you have things like that, that, that doesn't really buy because it's not in a mound. So, right, right. But just the idea, I, I mean, these, these burial mounds, uh, they're not supposed to be disturbed. Sometimes they are intentionally disturbed, which is not a good thing. Other times they are, let's say someone is not aware of what it is. Uh, maybe their uh, their backhoe or their tractor, they're farming, they disturb right. the mound. And then all of a sudden, there's, I don't know if there's a connection, but there seems to be paranormal activity or, or sightings of strange uh, creatures. So what, what do you imagine might be at work there? Is there some sort of a a spirit that's protecting these mounds? Uh, what what might be happening here? Well, I mean, if, if you're familiar with animism and, and the concept that, you know, everything, the wind, the water, everything has a spirit, as close as the natives were with uh, trying to live in harmony with, with nature, I would think that would probably build a very strong rapport and, and a very strong uh, memory with the locations. It's just like anything you put a lot of time into. Say you went to your grandparents' house or even after they were gone, you would still feel their presence there at certain certain times, uh, or you could. But, and I do think the fact that it is a thing of reverence and it is a thing of not just, not just reverence, but preparation uh, for maybe what comes next and, or whatever. It's just a thing, like if when just when the say like the pyramids were ransacked, you know, there's there's a stories of curses and whatnot. I do think that there's definitely a presence that lingers in places people in turn they're dead, especially if they go to a, a very big ceremonial aspect of it, because I think you give a, give off a certain part of your your heart, just like when you lose somebody. There's that element of you know I lost a bit of my heart today. I think that's real. I think that's 100 percent real. And I could see there be some sort of a, some sort of debt you had to pay for that. All right, we're going to take a quick time out. Steve stays with us. Curious counties from Kentucky, dang strange and mostly true tales. And uh, next up, we'll talk about uh, Henderson County, Kentucky, and uh, the year 1901, a place of massive death and destruction. Back with more. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Before we get back to Steve Asher, I get a lot of emails uh, these days, people asking me about my old podcast, uh, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Uh, which was done in conjunction with uh, Chris Jericho and uh, his podcast network. And um, uh, I guess we did about 45 episodes. 
and uh, people uh, loved it. Um, it was so much uh, work and took so much time. I just I had to let it go, unfortunately. But um, people want to hear it, and it's currently not available on any podcast platform. You can't hear it anymore. Uh, at some point, we'll figure out what we're going to do with it. But uh, we have made it available one episode a month to some of our Patreon uh, sponsors. So that's just one of the little uh, little tidbits, one of the little goodies you'll get as uh, our thanks to you for becoming an official supporter, a Patreon supporter. Go to patreon.com slash strange planet, patreon.com slash strange planet. And if you've uh, thought about uh, getting involved in uh, the program as a uh, as an official donor, uh, your uh, your support and any amount, uh, every any monthly amount given is uh, tremendously appreciated and uh, uh, really helps us out. Again, Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. There are a number of donor tiers available, uh, but just whatever you want to give, really, and uh, find the tier or the level that's right for you. And for some of those levels, again, you get uh, an episode of my podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, um, delivered to your email inbox once a month. All right, Steve Asher is uh, a folklorist from the great state of Kentucky, and he's got a couple of collections uh, just recently that went to print, Curious Counties from Kentucky, Dang, Strange, and Mostly True Tales, Uh, 60 counties are covered in volume one, and he'll uh, tackle the next 60 counties, 120 counties in Kentucky. That's coming out uh, shortly in volume two. And um, Short Stories for Darker Nights is another collection. And um, before we get back into some of these stories, I'm trying to imagine uh, the the types of stories that you tell around your house, Steve. Do your children, do they want to hear these as bedtime stories, (laughs) these strange tales, or do you tell them? You know the typical bedtime stories that the children listen to. Well, most of my uh, most of my little ones aren't so little anymore. My my uh, youngest boy Ivan, he's he's just turning uh, just turned fifteen, so he's they're sort of out of that. But now the grandkids, you know, that's that's another story. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of do a Disney version of some of this. I mean, uh, of course, the old stories of giants and things like that 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 lived in the area and things like that. Uh, they all know about. They heard stories of Bigfoot and whatnot. So we touch on that. I don't get too much into the grizzly stuff with them. You know, I don't get too ready for that yet. But, yeah, you know, we touch on some of this for sure. All right. So I want to talk about um, uh, Henderson County because uh, this one is a little, uh, a little more on the, uh, the darker side, shall we say. Tell me about is – it, is the town actually called Falling? Falling? Uh, is that the name of the town? Well, there, there's Henderson County. And uh, the, I believe the name of the little town, well, there, there is Henderson, uh, and then there's also the, uh, the neighboring uh, state of Indiana, which is Evansville, Indiana. So that's very close to that. Uh, I believe that is right, because uh, if, if you'd come through that area uh, around that time, and you, you said it was 1901, and so this is quite a while away, we still remember... Here, anyway, um, if you talk to anybody, especially from this part of Kentucky or probably from the south, the great ice storm of 2009, everyone's still scared to death of that. 
And I never really understood it because I remember my grandparents and them talking about a long time ago, another really, really bad storm. And they were talking about the great sleet and what had happened. Basically, it started, started sleeting and it fell for two weeks straight. I'm talking day and night. Wow. Relentless. And that in itself is not a good thing. But imagine way back then, travel came to a standstill. Work can come to a standstill. You couldn't get out to really get food. You couldn't get out to hunt. You couldn't cut down. You couldn't cut wood to burn it. There's like, you know, two or three inches of ice on everything. Everything was frozen. And it was bad. You know, what, what lines were up, you know, communications, telegraphs, or whatnot, gone. Uh, it was just really bad. And it actually got to the point where, as I understand, several people will start. You know, it's, and it's just, it's a good reminder, A, that we've got it pretty good. And secondly, how quickly nature can turn on you because nature isn't your friend, yet you need to respect nature and appreciate it and work with its cycles. But no, Mother Nature can go any way she wants. And um, to be prepared. It's always good to be prepared. I don't, I don't, I'm not necessarily a prepper, but, you know, I've, I've got, I can show you in my kitchen right now, I've got, you know, mason jars. I've done canning and whatnot and preserved vegetables right. and things. But uh, weather, I mean, weather can but, be strange. And you've talked about it, you know, uh, we've talked about weather before, but, but for it to sleet day and night for two weeks straight, I mean, that sounds almost biblical. I mean, as you point out, these these frozen trees were, were crashing down on the houses, destroying houses. People were stuck in their homes. People were starving to death as a result of these two weeks of, of sleet in Henderson County. Uh, Steve, hold on. We'll take another time out, come back, and uh, a few more logs to throw on the proverbial fire right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, we are back with folklorist and curator of high strangeness, Steve E. Asher, and uh, Curious Counties, Dang But Mostly True Tales from Kentucky, and um, Black Magic. Let's talk a little bit about Black Magic, and uh, this is in Harrison County, Kentucky, the small community of Leesburg, and uh, going back to 1841. And a 13-year-old uh, girl by the name of Penelope Stout. Tell me about her and uh, what happened in Harrison County. Well, you know, like you said, you were talking about the aspect of witchcraft and the fact that for a lot of people, it's so far away. And it's such a thing of, um, it's almost laughable to think about witch trials and, and accusations of the occult and whatnot and, you know, dark magics and things. But are people just think, oh, well, that was back in Salem or that was, no, no, it, it happened here too. Like, like I try to, you know, as I've said in this book, a lot of stuff that has happened, good and bad, has happened here too because there's this, people are fallible and people can get mob mentalities and they can react to something new out of fear or out of curiosity or out of concern. And unfortunately, uh, there's always going to be a handful of people in the peanut gallery that want to shout accusations and speak of what they do not know. And this is the unfortunate thing that happened to Miss Penelope. 
uh, by the time she was 13, um, she started growing like real thick bristled hair out of her, one of her thumbs, almost like um, quills. All right. And after a while, these fell out and it grew almost like a, a pretty silky type hair. It was about, I think, about six inches long. And I, it didn't really serve a purpose or anything like that. But, you know, they would shave it, get rid of it, whatever. Boom, it would come right back every so often. And this continued on for a while. Well, of course, again, the neighbors are starting to go, well, you know, we didn't really have a good crop this year. Or, you know, some of our, some of our calves died or something like that. Well, maybe, maybe it's that Penelope girl. Maybe she's bewitched them. Maybe, they, you know, all that stuff. And before long, it starts gathering speed. And so the father, who was you know, a, a pretty well-known, respected gentleman, had to get other higher-ups in the community to go, look, they know this girl is a good girl. She has, uh, you know, very chaste and, and of, of good moral fiber to more or less keep this girl from the chance of going into a witch trial because it was going that way. And apparently this is a thing that continued on uh, throughout her life. She did get to marry. She ended up marrying a, a man, I believe his name was Amos, who said, well, you know, we all have our quirks and this happens to be yours. And, and she actually had two children and she died on the, I believe it was before the second birthday of the second child. And so she has descendants there now. I was not able to find those descendants, but that I had learned about this through some locals of the story. And um, but apparently none of the children were afflicted with this particular ailment. So whatever it was, died with her. But it shows you just how quickly in, that people can turn on each other in tense situations, and why we need to really look at that and, and try to think a little bit, be a little bit more forward thinking. It it is kind of scary to think that as late as the the mid nineteenth century, uh, there were well, it didn't go to a witch trial, but it could have very well have gone to a witch trial in eighteen in the eighteen forties, just because of an errant growing hair out of her thumb, a coarse black hair growing out of her thumb, they were ready to uh, try her as a witch. Uh, I want to ask you about. Um, Hickman County and uh, these giant hogs uh, there, one, one that, that uh, earned the nickname the Widowmaker. Tell me about these hogs. Hogs from well, hell. Basically hogs from hell. You're absolutely right. Um, this, uh, this actually was like the, the, the 71st county formed in here, and it was actually in 1821. Um, uh, it's it right next to the Mississippi River, so there was a lot of a lot of people coming up through everything, up through the Revolutionary War, Civil War battles, all this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of marshy swampland in that area, and the floods were there, very commonplace, and it was sort of like a land off to its own. Um, there's a little spot called Beulah Bottoms, and this is a very murky kind of area, a lot of snakes, biting bugs, you know, creaking toads, all that stuff, all the stuff you think kind of goes with it. Well, some of the things that happen, as you know, uh, People come to the New World, as it's called, even though it was already an old world, but okay, Eurocentric, whatever. So they would bring stuff to the New World, and maybe it's whatever, hogs or certain type of horses and peacocks, different, different things from different whatevers. 
uh, a lot of these were livestock creatures. And just, uh, if you've ever dealt with pigs, they're actually very, very bright creatures, and they can get out, they get out of fencing like Houdini. So every so often you'll have some run, get out. Well, apparently a male and a female got out, and so nature took its course, and so these hogs are starting to be born in the wild. Uh, it's funny how quickly animals revert to their, their, their factory setting, as I call it, that basic live, you know, live, die, or escape kind of, you know, kind of mentality. And that's what happened. And as these things bred, the more feral, stronger of each litter was the ones who made it. The strongest survived. And these things turned into monsters. I'm talking 700 pounds easily. It has even been reports, like you said, of, of the Widowmaker, uh, which was about 900 or so pounds. This wow, not, 900 pounds. Um, 900 pounds. That's a, that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big pig. And large tusks, you know, they started growing their tusks again, almost became like razorbacks. And these would not just go into farm areas and, and, and eat whatever domesticated animal stuff. There were reports of running into silos. I'm not talking about those little ones. I'm talking those big honking ones you see, you know, on a big farm. Knocking hose, knocking the rivets out of the uh, out of the metal, getting in there and getting and eating their fill. This is it's like a rhinoceros, you know. And uh, they've been trying to hunt these things down. It's, it's really is a, it really is an epidemic. It's really gone to the point where it's so invasive that it's you know killing out a lot of the native native animals, destroying farmlands, destroying you know areas where other animals are eating. And it, it really became a blight on the on the on the area, and so they have a lot. You know, they have hunts to try to to uh, call them, because otherwise they would be everywhere. I mean, it got to the point. But where this they one were, is this one is called the Widowmaker. Did it kill anybody? The name implies yeah. that it did. Well, I understand it. Uh, definitely, people have received a life uh, life threatening wounds, and as I understand, a few people have died from it. It's uh, kind of like the big grandpa of it. I, don't, I have no idea how old it is. I really don't know how old hogs can live and be, you know, uh, virile and, and breed and do all that. But this this thing's a good lord. It's a monster. And like you said, people still are aware of it. You know, even when they get this down, they know how quickly, you know, these can can rebreed in a handful of seasons, and you've got fresh fresh bucks or, or what do you want to call them? I'm not sure. The big the big male hogs, a boar, the uh, boar and the, uh, yeah, thank you. Boar and the sow. Right. 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 So these monster boars in which the, the females are wild too. They're, they're, and gosh, forget, forbid you get near their, their piglets, you know, well, never get between a mom. Well, be forewarned. Cow. If you ever, if you're ever down in Hickman County, Kentucky, you, you best, um, you know, make sure you're looking over your shoulder lest you be, uh, uh, attacked by one of these 900 pound hogs. Um, we're just about out of time, but just give us a taste of this, uh, this, uh, lake creature down in Garrett County, Kentucky, the, the home of the, uh, the very famous novel, uncle Tom's cabin. Yeah. You know, that's a really oddball story because when I had initially kind of heard about it, I'm like, is it an urban legend? Is it, you know, what, what's the story with this? But apparently it's, the creature is described. It's, it's more. I don't want to say it's a 
river snake, but because it has sort of a lamprey aspects to it, to, to, to the way it's it's built, but it moves like a snake. Apparently, it's well over twenty foot long, uh, which is terrifying enough. You know, python, anaconda could be like that. Well, only thing is, this thing supposedly has mammalian features. It has almost like a uh, primate or, or basic or like an early human face, almost kind of Cro-Magnon, distorted, but looks like, have you ever seen the fish? It looks like they have teeth. You know how weird that is? I don't know if oh, you've yes. seen that. Google that. That's, that's a nightmare. But this <laughs> thing will, is eating everything up. It's eating up all, not just fish. It will jump out of the water and grab waterfowl. We'll grab ducks. We'll grab whatever gets close to the water. Um, to the point where there are certain times of year, apparently they don't even let people go there to fish or nothing like that. Wow. Uh, Siva, uh, I got to, I got to run here, but I, I, despite all of these scary stories, I still love Kentucky. It's not going to be, it's not going to scare me away. Uh, people can get curious counties from Kentucky, dang strange and mostly true tales at Amazon. And, uh, also we should point out the website, Steve E. Asher, Dot com. Steve, then the initial E, Asher, A-S-H-E-R.com. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. God bless and best to your family. Thanks for having me on. All right, Steve. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.